It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at PenFed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. In a world where data is the new oil, being able to understand, analyze, and interpret it is a vital skill. As the saying goes, knowledge is power, and in this case, data literacy is the key to unlocking that power. I argue that data literacy is as important to individual and organizational success as computer literacy, but unfortunately, this is not a consensus view. For many organizations and their leaders, low data literacy is hampering their ability to make effective data-driven decisions. So what is the key to creating a data-literate organization and unlocking the true potential of your data? Well, who better to guide us through the many aspects of this question than data literacy expert Kevin Hannigan? Kevin is the chief learning officer at Click and a renowned author of the books Data Literacy in Practice and Turning Data into Wisdom. In this episode of Leaders of Analytics, Kevin will be sharing invaluable insights and expertise from his books and his work at Click. Listen as we explore how data literacy can transform businesses, boost individual careers, and help us make better informed decisions. Practical tips and strategies for developing data literacy skills, common misconceptions or challenges that hold people back from becoming data literate, and how to overcome these, how to foster a data-driven culture within an organization, and much more. Let's get to it. Here's Kevin. Kevin Hennigan, welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Thanks, Jonas. Looking forward to this. Thanks for having me. It is so good to have you on the show today because we have a very important topic to discuss, which is dear to my heart, which is data literacy, which will be the central topic of this conversation, but I'm sure we'll we'll cover lots more around that topic and everything data, because you have a very interesting background and we'll hear about that. I've given a bit of an introduction, but I think Kevin, we should hear it from you as well. So maybe let's kick off with you giving us a bit of a synopsis of who you are, what you do and your career background. 
Absolutely. So my name is Kevin Hannigan. I currently am the chief learning officer for a data and analytics company called Click. I also work for a uh, something called the Data Literacy Project, which is a organization that helps to drive awareness and education and enablement around this concept of data literacy. Interesting enough, my background is actually pretty technical. So undergrad, I was computer science and math. I don't use that today. Data literacy is not technical, but it's just interesting. That's the background. And then through my years, I, I got into teaching, learning about adult education, learning a little bit about psychology. And I just had this moment where I was like, data literacy checks all those things. Like everyone's working with data. There's some technical stuff, but there's also some psychological stuff. You have to know a little bit about the brain and how that works. And it just struck me as there's so many people making less than ideal decisions. And it's partly because they're nervous about data or they're overconfident. So even though you know my day job and all the other things I do kind of relate around data and analytics, my passion is educating people that data literacy is important. It's here to stay. And it's it's not just for the data scientists in the world. And we're going to unpack all that data literacy in a moment. But I'm actually interested, before we get to that, Kevin, in what does a chief learning officer do? What's beneath that title? Yeah, absolutely. The The role I have at Click is a little bit unique. Historically, chief learning officers sit under an HR function and they do kind of internal learning and development. So they'll help upskill employees, whether it be business skills, soft skills, tech skills, leadership development. We do have a component of that at Click where we do obviously internal, we train on data literacy, but also soft skills and also our product as well. But I also have a customer facing role where we educate people on our product as well as data literacy, help educate partners on those things as well. So anything having to do with learning and enablement internally or externally, we somehow touch in, in whether it be building courses or, or similar. So it's every day is different, but it always revolves around learning, which is good. Yeah. And as a Click customer, I can attest to you having quite an extensive learning environment, self-paced learning environment on your website. So I assume you have had a finger in the pie there as well. Is that correct? Absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah. The Click Continuous Classroom has product training, data literacy training. It's my baby. So that's that's good to hear. There you go. I've hit the, the gold ore here. That's good. Yes. <laughs> Now, Kevin, let's get into data literacy because we have a lot to cover on that topic today. And before we get to sort of defining what data literacy is, I'm interested in, in one more topic around your background because you're actually the author of two books, one called Data Literacy in Practice and the other one called Turning Data into Wisdom. And these books touch the same topic. Could you tell us about what these books are and what inspired you to write about the topics and why you believe they're crucial to the world? Absolutely. So the first book was Turning Data into Wisdom, and, and that's around decision-making and business strategy in today's world. It, it, it obviously is about data literacy, but it's about how do you take the data to make better informed decisions, and what is that strategic process you go from asking the right question, analyzing the right data, applying your insights and human element to that, communicating the decisions out, and I think it's useful because today we're we're all making decisions with data, but we don't really have proper schooling or frameworks or techniques on how to do that. So that one's a little bit more academic on different models you can use to, across the board. Myself and, and a lady, Angelica Clytus, co-wrote the next one, Data Literacy in Practice, which is much more for the wider audience. It's You've heard the term data literacy. 
you don't really know much about it or, or you might know what it is, but you don't know how to improve your data literacy. You don't know one of the different categories. So it's it's very filled with stories, customer stories of how they make better decisions with data. And a, a big focus on it is for the consumers, how they're interpreting the data that might be created for them. And we have some assessments in there so you can assess like your individual data literacy, but then you can also assess your organizational maturity around data literacy. So they both kind of complement each other in different ways. Great. And I think when I talk to my stakeholders in my organization about data literacy, their eyes tend to glaze over a bit just from hearing those two words. One, because the first word is data, and that's not something that is... It might perhaps be interesting to lots of people, but it's it's a daunting topic. And literacy is the opposite of being illiterate. So you're kind of saying, hang on, you're, you're an illiterate in data. So there's probably a subliminal uh, a pride thing there. And um, that's something that I think we need to explore in this conversation, how you, how you turn that around. But before we do that, Kevin, could you define what you think data literacy is specifically? Yep, it's a great point because you Google, there's so many definitions out there and all of them might say the same thing, but they're too wordy or convoluted. Like one of them is read, work with, argue, communicate, but people don't really know how to do that. So to me, data literacy is, and you said we'll get to it, you really have to define what data means. But the, the definition of data literacy to me is people effectively and efficiently using data to make better decisions. Involves critical thinking, involves arguing, communicating with it, a little bit of curiosity and creativity. At the end of the day, you're making decisions with data that improve your personal life or your work life. So if I paraphrase what you're saying, it is also, but it's not just being able to read a chart or interpret a table of data or some sort of analytical output, but it's also saying, okay, given this, what do we do next? And what are the things we can conclude on this? But also, just as importantly, what are the things we cannot conclude on this information? Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I like to break it down into different levels because it's not just binary. It's not like, like to your point, if you're not data literate, are you data illiterate? I, I wouldn't necessarily think anyone's data illiterate, but there might be different levels of literacy. And the first level I like to kind of talk about is is you know how to describe data. So to your point, you can read a chart. You understand what it says when your sales are down 20%. You understand when it tells you these are your different demographics. But it's like your book smart. It doesn't mean, to your point, you're reasoning with the data. You're applying it to a question. You're comprehending what does it mean to me. Those are higher level things where you have to challenge. Is the chart even answering the question you're asking. Is there another variable that could be looking at this without, I don't want to get too technical because a lot of this stuff, you're not teaching math, you're teaching critical thinking, you're teaching curiosity. But when you're actually challenging that, you're applying, you're you're gaining an understanding and you're kind of reasoning with data. To me, that's kind of the holy grail of data literacy is you start by learning about data and information, but eventually you get to the point where you can actually reason with it. Yeah, and a common scenario that I experience is, I'll give you a hypothetical example here, but this is typically where I think the the sort of the, the chain comes off the cog a bit in organizations, which is the ability to put up a hypothesis versus making conclusions on that same hypothesis. So for instance, a scenario could be sales are down in April and we go up, oh, but we had Easter in April. So it might be that that people were on holidays and therefore they weren't buying our products so much. 
which is a very plausible hypothesis in many organizations, but it doesn't mean that it's actually a fact. Uh, yet a lot of organizations might take that uh, or some audiences in that organization might take that as fact without having actually the ability to then go and say, oh, well, it could also be other things. And how do we prevent that in the future uh, using data? That is sort of a, a good example of uh, the where data literacy can help sort of, uh, suppose, jump that chasm. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's a perfect example because that happens every day is, you know, and that's where the human brain and like the neuroscience comes in is our brains want to make everything make sense and, and it, want to con it wants to find data that conforms with our beliefs. So if we think sales are down or someone told us sales are down because of one specific reason, then we see data and it says, yeah, you're right. We don't tend to stop and think about, okay, well, what else could it be? We do that when the data doesn't make sense. And one of the, when I do a class live, I usually show very similar example, marketing increased spend in a given month. And then all of a sudden sales go up for the next three months. Everyone's excited. Does that mean the marketing led to sales? Most people say it does because it makes sense, but I use the same data. I just changed the, the variables to be ice cream sold in shark attacks. And I ask everyone, okay, because we're selling more ice cream, is there more shark attacks? Everyone's like, no, I'm like, but it's the same data. And they're like, oh, well, it's because that doesn't make sense. And that's the brain working. It's the beauty and also the lack of beauty of the brain is it it wants to find things that make sense. When it does, it doesn't challenge it, it just says move on. And those confirmation biases get us in trouble. That's why you need a framework because the brain's not going to automatically say, let's challenge if it was because it was Easter or because it was something else, because many times it is going to be something else or it's going to be a, multiple things, not just one thing. And we just tend to look for that simple, quick answer. Yeah, and what you're alluding to is our old school brain, the one that we've had for millions of years, acting on reasoning by analogy and example, which is very, very practical when you have to make quick decisions, but it gets in the way of making big business decisions, which are typically more convoluted. And now we also have data, so we don't have to make decisions like that anymore. Exactly. But Kevin, what you're describing is really that... For a lot of people, this is a bit about rewiring their brain a bit or their thinking patterns, and you have to be sort of really conscious about that. So that's not necessarily an easy task. How does one do that as an individual, and how do you train or coach your organization to do that at scale? Yep, it's a great point because you're right. It's like take practices in industries that do it really well. Like you think about doctors they you go in with some symptoms and they have a hypothesis and they do more tests and they get to the point where they're like okay you might have the common cold you might have a debilitating disease we're going to treat one learn from it and if it doesn't fix it we're going to go down the next one they're using a systematic process or you look at scientists with the scientific method here's our thought let's try everything we can do in our power to disprove it when we can't we'll prove it they're successful because they have a habit of following this process. In business, we don't follow that process. We move quick and we're like, let's find the answer. Oh, there's the answer, let's move on. So I think the best way to train our brain to do this is to follow a process because then once you follow the process, time in and time out, it becomes habitual. Once it becomes habitual, maybe you don't need the process as much, but it, you, you're still following it, it's just ingrained in your brain and that scales. So every organization I work with, I want them to come up with, here's your decision-making process. And there's very specific steps where you're asking questions like, in what situation is this not true? 
what are your assumptions that you're not stating out loud? In what situation could those assumptions be incorrect? When you put that into a process, it's not perfect, but at least it helps people. Otherwise, it's just random luck whether they're going to follow it or not. So you kind of need that systemic process. I found it very successful. And obviously, there are certain steps I skip if they're not applicable, but just it gives me that frame set. Then once I start seeing value from it, my brain is saying, oh, wait a second, this is valuable to me. Because I think part of the challenge is a lot of people don't realize they're making less than ideal decisions. So they're like, or they hear the word data and they cringe. That's kind of why I'm not a huge fan of the name data literacy, because it 50% of the audience is just like, time out, I'm done, not for me, you mentioned data. It really is about, to your point, changing your brain, changing your way of thought, understanding when this scenario could be not true. And, and I've just found following processes being the best way to do that. So a process that sort of pushes you down the road of, of critical thinking, of learning to build hypotheses and learning how to create experiments, I assume here. So absolutely. And before that, just one thing before that, it's building the hypothesis. But one thing we forget is building the right question. A lot of times we don't build the right question. And then we end up doing all of these analytics and we come back all excited and we're like, yeah, that really wasn't what we were asking. So it's it's starting with the right question, but then building the, the hypothesis and drilling into it. It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. So Kevin, let's try and play this out in a practical example. So let's say you come to my organization, Acme Inc., and we're wanting to be data literate, but we don't really know where to start. How would you go about training, coaching, and involving that organization to become really good at this? Who should be involved? What is the training and the, the habits that we need to build and so on? And so, what, and we do this a lot, what, what is really interesting, but also makes it complicated is I really think the best approach from an executive sponsorship, you need someone from HR, like the chief people officer, because we're doing change management, we're doing organizational readiness, we're changing cultures, but then you also need people from the data and the analytics office because they need to be on board to make sure that they're giving the right data and the openness to access this data. Once we do that, we usually don't want to you know, start massive. We want to start with one project and show value. And then we've seen everyone in the organization's like, oh, look what they did in that department. They were able to do this and that and this. At the end of the day, really all we're doing is we're providing education. We're teaching them the best way to use data. We're teaching them, I would say, data fundamentals, which is equivalent to math you learn when you're like 10. Like if you can understand a denominator, you can be data literate. Like you don't need to know these advanced calculations. So we do a lot of that. We talk about bias and how it works. And the biggest hurdle we see is there's a good portion of the organization that says that stuff's not true. Bias is is voodoo magic. It's not accurate. We don't need to do any of that stuff. And, and so really this awareness education program helps. That gets you about maybe in my mind, 60, 70% of the way there what you're going to run up to in some organizations next is you're going to have a process, you're going to educate people on this, 
And if your middle level management doesn't embrace it, the culture is just going to shut the whole thing down. They're going to say, why are you challenging me? Why are you asking these questions? One of the most simplest things we do in the framework is we teach people how to ask why. But if you're in an organization where you go to your boss and say, well, why do you think that? And they say, because I said so, don't, don't talk back to me, which is how some organizations work. I mean, that's how my kids, and they're like, if I do that with my teacher, I'm going to get detention. If the culture at that level doesn't change, everything we did is moot. So it's it's educating the individuals, but getting that buy-in from those middle leaders to be open to showing their work, explaining their thought process, open, I call it intellectual humility, open to the fact that someone else might have a diverse perspective that changes my mind. If you can't do that, nothing else matters. So, so just a summary takeaway, education for everyone in the organization, not just people that produce data, but people that consume data, but then you have to get the culture right with that organization. And that is sometimes the hardest part because people don't like change many times. I would say you can walk into this exercise with the absolute assumption that someone will be difficult or not willing to be part of it. So how do you deal with that? You could have potentially some very loud voices, some very influential voices in an organization saying, this is not for me or for us, for my department, for my team. What is your process to work through that with them and turn them around? Yeah, there's a couple of things we've tried that work. I think the first thing I alluded to before is, is pick a project to start with where you have a supportive management system, and then you can prove value. Now, the challenge there is people are going to rightfully say, well, you can't 100% say the project succeeded because of data literacy and culture. It, a lot of it is indirect, but you get people's eyes open and then you show another project and then slowly the momentum builds that the people who are the kind of laggards or they're the minority and they're fearful if I don't change, everyone else is going to move on without me. So we we do a lot of success stories. We do a lot of win reports. We do a lot about congratulating people when they take the training classes so that they feel confident with that. The other thing we do sometimes is... A lot of what we talk about with like neuroscience and the brain, if you don't believe it, me telling you it's true, you're not going to believe it. You almost have to put them in a simulation where they have a bias and you catch them on it. So sometimes we do these games or we do exercises or we show them some visualizations and we ask them what are their insights on the visualizations. And they're not trick questions, but sometimes there's confounding variables that are drawing things. Sometimes they're showing they have confirmation bias and then you'll see the jaws just drop. They're like, wow, because it, it's seeing is believing. So anything you can do to actually have those people who don't think it applies to them, show them an example where they had confirmation bias or they had any other type of bias or where they didn't challenge their assumption. I've never had that happen. And someone does not all of a sudden be like, okay, I'm in it. They still have to change, but they want to change at that point. If they don't want to change, they're never going to do it. So it doesn't always get to that, but there's always a few people where you have to put them in that sim simulation or that exercise where they, in re retrospect, are like, oh, okay, now I see it. Yeah, so a bit of an aha moment or a paradigm shift almost creating that moment. So, Kevin, that was really useful. Could you share with us some success stories? You've done this a few times. Could you 
tell us about a time where you you had to do this and sort of how it worked out and maybe the challenges you had throughout? Yep. I'll do a personal one and then I'll do a business one because the personal one, I think everyone can relate to. And then the business one's a little bit more specific, but with the personal one, you and I talked before, so I have four boys and the, the oldest one actually has a few special needs. He has um, autism and some mental health issues. And when he was younger, he was in school and we got a call. We had to go to the, the, the school and they showed us data. They showed us a spreadsheet. His behaviors were continuing to escalate and escalate and escalate. And they were going to kick him out of school. I'm like, all right, like, how do you challenge behaviors are going up, right? That's black and white. They are going up. But using this process, we're training ourselves to think, okay, why did they go up? We didn't have enough data. So I just politely said, okay, can you just take some more data like time of day? My thought is, my hypothesis was maybe he's doing it at lunch or recess where it's like kind of hectic. Maybe he's doing it Monday because he's at home and it's a different structure. What was he doing before? What was the consequence? Really didn't see much. And then we had another meeting. They were getting ready to expel him. And all of a sudden I saw it and I turned to my wife and I was like, I figured it out. They they used all the right data. They used spreadsheets. They used bar charts. They used the line chart to showing everything increasing. Their takeaway from this was behaviors are increasing. We don't know how to stop it. We're going to have to kick your son out of school. If you follow a process, one of the steps that we talk about is, is challenging your assumptions. In what situation is this not happening? Looking at the data, one of the columns said, what are the behaviors and what's the consequence? Majority of the consequences was going to the principal's office. So the assumption they made was most people don't like going to the principal's. It's it's seen as, oh, my, I'm in trouble. My son at the time loves adult stimulation. I think he did it on purpose. So we call him into the meeting. I'm like, hey, how was today? What did you do? And he's like, dad, it was great. I punched a kid. They sent me to the principal. She read to me for an hour. I think I'm going to punch someone else tomorrow. I just sat back like this. My wife's jaw dropped. The teachers were like, oh my God. And I'm like, don't worry. I do this for a living, but everyone should be able to do this. I just challenged your assumptions. And now if I didn't have data literacy, and again, this has nothing to do with data. Like I wasn't looking, I looked at a spreadsheet, right? But I didn't do any algorithms. I didn't do any advanced math. I just challenged it. And I'm like, what case is this not true? You're going to find eight times out of 10, it's going to be something like that. So that's kind of a personal example. Business example, you actually alluded to a very similar one. Sales are dropping and everyone was, oh my God, what's going on? We're going to do layoffs. And we were happened to be at the customer doing some analytics for them. And long story short, they didn't believe that they had the right sales force to execute on the job. They were about to do some layoffs and same process. We looked at all the data. One of the parts of the process is to look at the data, what I call systemically, like look at all the possible variables. So if you're a global sales company, is it you're, are you selling direct? Are you selling through a partner? Look at the different pieces you are selling. Look at how many units you're selling. Look at the discount. Look at everything. You're, long story short, when we had them follow the process, what they realized was that they in term, and this is where it comes back to the question is absolutely vital because the question they were asking is, are our sales going up? It doesn't sound like it, but that's a very subjective question because what is a sale? Is it a gross margin? Is it a net margin? Is it units? Is it profit? Is it what? So the person who was doing the analytics showed that no, the sales were dropping like 50%. 
Turns out, long story short, by following the process, what they realized was they were actually selling more units than they were the year before. Three months ago, they started going from an average discount of 5% to an average discount of 45%. And then they're like, oh, we have a new person in our finance team who's approving discounts. Like, okay, so don't lay anyone off. Don't change your sales team. Have a talk with the finance person and say, why are you doing this? And it sounds like common sense in hindsight, but it's really hard in the moment because the brain's like, sales are going down. I don't need to question it. I just need to act. So let's let's cut our expenses and bring in new salespeople. Kevin, I loved both of those examples. And I was giggling a bit when you talked about your your son, which I think is such a such a neat example of how you can make the wrong decisions based on some data, but not enough. But there's a very serious side to that because there's a human being involved there. In this case, your son, he could have, this could have been a massive fork in the road of his life. He could have been expelled and who knows what would have happened. This would have been a different path altogether for him. And this is the same when we make conclusions on data sets in an organization. We are creating forks in the road for the organization and also for our customers. And it is actually such a critical skill to have. I think your example really sort of epitomizes why this is important because you are creating those forks in the road for people all over the place all the time with the decisions you make. And if you if you do that lightly, then who knows what path they're going to be following, but it's probably not the one that you'd actually want them to follow in hindsight. Exactly. So thank you for sharing that. Now, I'm interested in on this topic, Kevin, what, what are some common misconceptions or challenges that people face when trying to become more data literate and how do they typically overcome these obstacles? Could you give some examples of that? Yeah, I think the first one is something you alluded to is the name, data literacy. So usually the way I overcome it is I proactively, if I'm speaking to a large audience, like, all right, how many people are scared of data? Maybe 30% of the room raised their hand. How many people actively avoid data? And you, you see all these hands drop. And then I'm saying, so how many people now are scared of data literacy as a result? And everyone that raised their hand keeps their hand up. So the first thing I like to kind of disarm this is data is a generic word. To me, I'm not just talking about numbers, like quantitative data. If, it would almost be better if the coin wasn't taken if we call it information liter literacy. So to me, data is raw information. And then once you start aggregating it, you have what, what's true information. So it, it doesn't have to be a number. If you've ever gone on Amazon or another site and you looked at reviews, so let's say you're going on vacation in a couple of weeks and you go to a vacation website and you see three or four reviews. If the first review isn't specific, but it's like, oh my God, this was the worst decision ever. Don't ever stay here. What is your initial thought? Is your initial thought, and most people will say, well, let's look at the next house. And then I'll say, but but why? Why didn't they like it? Maybe they were looking for a house walking distance to the beach. You don't want to go on the beach. Maybe it's the perfect house for you. But if you didn't challenge it, and they're like, well, how can I challenge it? It's a static review. The person's not going to reply. I'm like, you challenge it by looking at the second review, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth. And you start to build enough data or an information or evidence to draw a conclusion. Same thing, you want to buy a coffee maker online. The first person's like, horrible coffee machine. 
why is it horrible? Maybe they don't make eight cups at a time and you only need to make one cup at a time. So the first thing I try to do to disarm it is you're using it all the time. Don't call it data if that's annoying. Call it information literacy. Call it evidence-based reasoning. Whatever term you want to use, just don't think it's about numbers. And then people are always like, okay, well, I hear I need to know statistics. I hear I need like advanced algebra and math. Like none of the stories I shared, did you have to do anything other than the human side of challenging assumptions? There's a couple examples I give with like sales and marketing where the populations need to, you need to under, understand the population size. So basically the denominator, I say the most math you'll ever need to know to do this is you'll have to understand the denominator. So if someone says group A has 500, group B has 400, which one's more prevalent? You shouldn't just think 500. You should think, well, what's the denominator? Because that makes a big difference that you're looking at percentages and things. Those are usually, once we do that, people are open. But I, I find the biggest blocker is people think data literacy is for creators of data. It's not. It, it, it is, but it's not just for them. It's for consumers of data. And the second thing is they think data is just a spreadsheet. It's not. It's anytime you see someone give you a statement, a focus group, a survey, an interview, a review on social media, all of those things are data. The examples I gave, none of them use really data, right? It's all just evidence and information. So framing it that way helps a lot of people, especially because we tend to talk about like the soft skills and stuff. And they're like, I don't understand how the soft skills relate to data. Well, they do if you don't think of it as data, think of it as information or evidence. Yeah, if listeners want to actually go and practice or exercise this this example in in reality, I encourage you to go and, and look at reviews on things that you actually know about. So one thing I've done a few times, Kevin, is go on Glassdoor and look at the reviews of the employer that I have worked for at any point in time. And I'd say most of the reviews I don't actually agree with because they're given by someone with a different context to me when I worked there at that time. So exactly. everything is in context is what you're saying, uh, basically. And the other thing to that is that... Your examples really show that people have information or data around them all the time. And a lot of these examples that you've given don't require you to have 100 million rows of click streams or, or what have you, right? Your example with your son, you asked him and it was a kind of one data point, but it was the, the very critical data point. What did you like about today, right? And you got the piece of information. And often that is the context that we're in in a business as well. So the number of times as an analytics leader, I've concluded something, then gone and sat for two hours with the call center just to listen to calls in the organizations that I've worked with. And gone, hang on, this is not actually what's happening. What we thought, the problem is something else. And it's because the systems aren't working or clients aren't liking the way that our process is or what have you, right? So some sort of other conclusion to what you, what you see in the data. Now, Kevin, we say that we don't need to know complex maths and have hundred millions of rows of data to make data-driven decisions. But at the same time, the volume and complexity of data is just growing exponentially in the world that we live in today. So how do you see the role of data literacy evolving in the future in this sort of environment where 
everything produces data and everything plays data and information back at you. What new skills and approaches may be needed from individuals and businesses to adapt to this? Yeah, and I, I don't know if they're new skills. I think they're skills that maybe we stop using a lot, but questioning, critical thinking are two of them. So with the advent of like artificial intelligence, generative AI, I'm a big in analytics tools like Click, let those do the number crunching. That's what they're made for. What they're not made for is the context and the human element. So what we need to do is someone might have millions of data points either a machine learning model, an AI algorithm, or an analytics tool is going to crunch those and give you some insights. You need to validate those insights. What's the question that you're asking? Is this helping you answer the question? What's missing that could help you answer the question? In what case is this misleading? All of those are human components where then maybe you're like, well, I don't know. Well, then go talk to people, go find additional sources, go make a very quick decision, learn from it if it was wrong, and then iterate through quickly. So I, I think kind of our decision-making skills are going to get better because we have to learn to question things. We we do it great as kids. I, I told you my background's in adult learning. One of the things that fascinates me is kids ask why because they have nothing stored in their long-term memory. Adults stop asking why because our long-term memory is full, and we just go back into our brain unconsciously like, well, eight years ago, I did this and this happened and boom, here's your intuition and your gut and you don't even know it's happening. So we stop asking why because the brain's like, nope, I got it. It happened eight years ago. Just just move forward. That's not a good model in today's world because everything changes. Click, we used to sell perpetual. Now we sell subscription. Everything's different. Numbers are different. So I, I think everyone needs to just kind of unlearn old things, use analytics to process information. Those of us that are scared of data, you probably use Alexa, you probably use Siri, you probably use other things. Let those crunch things for you, but you're going to add in the questioning. You're going to say, but why? You're going to apply the context to it. Yep. At least that's my hope. We, we've all learned to do Google searching well, and that is really, uh, the, at the crux of it, a, a big question and answer machine to some extent or you, you ask it some sort of question, even if you don't put it in in the context of a question, it is actually, it boils down to being a question. If you type in uh, best credit cards, you're really asking what are the best credit cards for the needs that I have, right? It's not the most effective question, but it is never, nevertheless a question at the end of the day. Hi there, dear listener. I just want to quickly let you know that I have recently published a book with six other authors called Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, a playbook for digital transformation. If you'd like to learn more about the book, then head over to www.leadersofanalytics.com AI. Now back to the show. So Kevin, we've talked a lot about data literacy here, and I'm interested in your view of any industries or sectors or even companies that you believe do this really well, that are leading the way in terms of data literacy adoptions? And what are the lessons we can learn from these guys? I think I alluded to a couple earlier, they probably just don't call it data literacy. And, and that would be things like doctors, and that would be scientists that use the scientific method. The point is they have data, they have a hypothesis, but then they challenge it and they use a systematic 
process. Imagine if you went to the doctor and they said, tell me about your symptoms. You're like, I think I have this virus. And the doctor's like, "Eh, that sounds right. Here's some medicine for it. And they don't challenge it or they don't ask other questions. They might not call that diddlers. They probably call it, I think they call it differentials. They do it because there's a lot of risk involved in there. I think industries behind that, that you have a lot of regulations, they've had to form processes because the risks are so high, whether it be financial services. I think probably the biggest industry that does it right would be like in US, we have NASA, like the the space agency, because the risk profile is so high. Now, there's a reason why they're doing that, but they're double checking everything, triple checking everything. They're getting diverse perspectives. And what's interesting, you read, unfortunately, a few of the space shuttles have blown up in the past and they do the postmortems. They actually learn from them. It's like they need to get better, diverse perspectives. They need to listen to more people. They tend to do it well. It's just a shame that they do it well and no one else picks up on that. They pick up on it and they're like, well, yeah, but I'm not sending someone into space. I'm just selling software. So my risk profile isn't as high. doesn't matter. You still can learn from them, right? They follow a process to challenge everything and get everyone's buy. And you can do the same thing even with a lower risk profile. And I think that's the takeaways everyone can learn is in all of those industries, whether it be this, you know, space or healthcare with, with doctors or scientists, they're challenging, they're questioning, they're politely challenging and questioning. And those are kind of my two takeaways. If some everyone had to learn one thing, learn how to question, learn how to politely challenge. Yeah, I think there is a lot to learn from companies that uh, work in an industry that has this sort of uh, high stakes or high risk uh, outcome potential. So you mentioned aerospace or NASA. I think airlines is another example of where there are lots and lots of checklists and we have to check all these things first and we have to get the data to say that uh, we can actually fly safely. And it's broken down into lots of bits and pieces. Now, granted, that is a reasonably controllable environment, but uh, without being an aviation expert, I'd also say there's lots of factors that you're not controlling for, and it's a very complex machine, a big plane. So if you're operating a business, what are the dashboards and checklists that you need to have yourself to make sure that everything's on track? I think of large engineering projects. You You don't get two goals at building that bridge or that skyscraper, if it collapses, then, I mean, that just can't happen, right? It, it's a, it cannot happen. But in, in businesses that are today creating tons and tons of data from the users, often sort of software-based businesses, they have way more data to make decisions on necessarily than some of those industries, yet they also have some failure points where you go, oh, that really shouldn't that shouldn't just happen. Software's with box and glitches, banks, systems not working overnight or what have you. you know, it's a, it's also engineering and, and so on. But then, but the decisions that have been made have often not been based on, on, on data in the same way because there is not the same almost unwillingness to take risk, uh, take the wrong kind of risk. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, Kevin, we're, Coming towards the end of this discussion, uh, one thing that I'm interested in from you is if you were to give an organization starting out with data literacy, your top three pieces of advice to start on that journey, what would they be and why? 
Good one. I think the first one I would say is for anyone making a decision at any level, put it in a decision journal, show your work. So again, my kids, they drive me, they're always like, well, why do I have to show my work in the math assignment? Why do I, they, and they don't do it. They just put the answer. And I'm like, well, the reason is because if you had a logic error, the teacher knows where you made the logic error and they can correct you. So if you make a decision in an organization, you don't explain the rationale. No one can say, and maybe that's why they don't say is they don't want anyone challenging them. No one can say, well, this was an incorrect assumption. This was here. So I'm a huge fan. Start out by showing your work. I think my second big thing toward that point, I'm a huge fan and believer of diversity trumps ability. Obviously, there's certain decisions you're going to make by yourself. There's certain decisions strategic enough you want to include people. I think the biggest light bulb I ever had was when I attended a workshop where they were talking about everyone talking in a meeting does it wrong because they all, everyone, whether you believe it or not, all you're trying to do is think about how you're going to prove the other person wrong and what your next comment's going to be. So I, I started learning about this concept of a dialogue where you get together and the ultimate outcome is not a decision, it's understanding. It's like, okay, what does Jonas think? And I'm, I'm, my brain's not trying to decide, it's trying to think. When you do that, you're going to start making better decisions instantly. It requires a good facilitator to do those things, but that helps. And then the third thing is what I alluded to before is come up with a systematic process. Because if you do that, you can always add in the points that people just don't have a habit of thinking about. Did Are my assumptions wrong? Did I challenge this? Are there other solutions? If you do that, before you do anything else, you're going to be moving in the right direction. Yeah. And when you're saying this, Kevin, I'm sort of sitting here imagining an organization as a, a decision machine almost that's making lots and lots and lots of big and small decisions all the time. So it's really sort of tuning the gears and turning the knobs of that decision machine for it to become a really, really highly effective sports car and not a clamped out old Volkswagen sort of Beetle or something like that, that doesn't run very far on gas. So um, yeah, I, I can really see the the value of this and just how important it can be for organizations, what a crossroads it can be for organizations when they actually learn to scale effective decision-making. Absolutely. Now, Kevin, I think we're at the end here. So I've got two questions uh, left for you. One is partly a question, partly an ask, which is for you to pay forward to the next guest. So uh, who would you like to see as the next guest on Leaders of Analytics and why? Yeah, I mean, selfishly, I would love to see Angelica Clyde as she was the co-author of my last book, Data Literacy in Practice. The reason being, we actually do complement each other really well. I like to think of things around the challenging, critical thinking, soft skills, and she comes at it from more of a, right, what's the right way to build a dashboard? What's the right way to avoid misinterpretation and misinformation? And so I'm giving you one perspective, but then you could get a whole valid yet different perspective from Angelica around those types of things. Selfishly, I'd love to see more people who are data doubters or data avoiders come on and, and talk about why they are. And you could almost spin it into a way where like you hopefully get them to be converts, right? Is is here about the flip side is not so much people that are leaders in analytics, but people that are the opposite and see if you can actually 
spin them into becoming leaders in analytics and embracing data and analytics. I don't have names for those, but I think that'd be kind of a, a cool podcast is, is get those people on and then convert them somehow. I love that challenge, Kevin. I will have a think about how I might do that. Because, yeah, you're, you're right. There is an element of preaching to the converted on this podcast necessarily. So that's an interesting challenge I'll take away. And I'd love Angelica to come on. I'm interested in what she can teach us all. So uh, we can see if we can see that up. Last question, Kevin, is where can people find out more about you and get a hold of your content? Yep. You can just go to my website, kevinhannigan.com. You can go find me on LinkedIn. I think there's only two Kevin Hannigans. Mine would be the one that obviously has data literacy. I think the other one's like a mechanical engineer or similar. And then if you want to learn more about data literacy in general, just go to the dataliteracyproject.org. And we have links to free training and blogs and reference articles and research papers just to help you or your organization learn more about what data literacy is and how it can help you. Great. And listeners, I've linked to those things in the show notes. So do go and check out Kevin's website and his books are also on there. So if you're interested in learning more about the details of this topic, you can go and check out those two books. Uh, They will be uh, highly informative on this topic. Kevin Hennigan, thank you so much for being on Leaders of Analytics today. I have really enjoyed this conversation and it's made me think a lot about how I can foster that literacy in my organization because this is a topic that is important but it it is truthfully for me as well a little bit hard to figure out how i go about in in educating the masses and where i start so i think you've kind of planted some seeds for me there personally i wish you all the best with your continued advocacy and passion for data literacy and thank you for helping us get better at data all around the world yeah thank you for having me i appreciate it Hi, dear listener, just a quick note from me before you go. If you enjoyed this show, then please don't forget to subscribe to future episodes via your favorite podcast app. I have loads more great stuff coming your way. Also, I'd love some feedback from you on this show. So please, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening and catch you soon.